Did you catch that right there at the very end? I may not be the only person in the room, but I'm willing to bet there's some other people who found it just kind of ironic that you have a young kid, you know, a young man going, when asked, hey, what's your favorite part about home? It's like, bro, the pool. <laughs> Sky's out, thighs out, sun's out, guns out, cool drink by the pool. Like, and, it, and then like paused and was like, yeah, steal the pool, for sure the pool. And then you fast forward to a guy who's a little older, to be nice. A man who probably has seen a few more years a man who I'm willing to bet has a little bit more wisdom that just comes from seeing things, from making mistakes, from a man who has raised children to the point where those children now have children. And you take a young man who when, you know, impromptu asked, hey, what's your favorite thing about home? He's like, without a doubt, the pool. And you take an old man and he says, without a doubt, it's my kids. The thing I love about my home is that all my kids are there. And I think that's some of what is going on inside of God's heart today. He looks around and not just what's happening here at MCC for our, both of our services and what's going on down there in children's ministry as I know they're busting at the seams and not just what's going on in our city or our country or our state, but in the entire world. I think the, the God of the universe looks and says, as a loving, caring, heavenly father goes, I love it when my kids are home, when they're gathered together, when they're unified in rooms together, when they're there. That's what makes my heart rejoice because they're gathered around my son who I gave for their joy. The early church would go back and forth on holy days and they would use it as a greeting with each other. And we did it a little bit when we first started today, but this whole thing of saying, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Okay, so they would say that back and they would say, he's risen. And they'd have to go back. He is risen indeed. And one of the other things they would do on top of that, we somehow lost this in our culture, is they would actually give three kisses on the cheek. Boop, boop, boop. Uh, we have left that out. Anybody glad that we left that out? Yeah, me too. Serious. Keep my face. Uh, stiff arm, old lady. Get out of here. But I think sometimes we can come into Easter services and we can chant that from our top of our lungs and be like, he has risen, he has risen indeed. And we're like, Braveheart, freedom. And that's kind of where we can get there. But you ever stop and wonder, why do we have to say it twice? And why do we have to add indeed? Maybe it's because the early churches, they were starting that, they knew the same thing that happened on the day the Easter first happened. That when the angel showed up and was like, he's risen, everybody was like, Word? For real? No way. And we had to reiterate and go, he is risen indeed. For real, he's about to show up to you guys. He's gonna come in the room, show you the hands, pull up the shirt, show you the side. He's gonna eat fish to prove he's not a ghost. He's risen indeed. And today, that's what we're gonna lean into. And the reason we have to lean into that, the reason we have to say he's risen indeed is because from the moment that he was risen to even now 2,000 plus years after, we don't expect people to rise from the grave. When he died that day, nobody was expecting him to raise up. See, the, the people there who had seen and experienced all the things and all the tyranny that the Roman government had done, all of these people had probably seen dozens maybe in their life crucifixions. People being hung on crosses by the Roman government. They had, they had crucified thousands of people. And what they knew is that resurrection did not come after crucifixion. That when you were crucified, you died. And dead things stay dead. And so in this moment, all people's hope is lost. 
There's no countdown at the tomb. There's not a crowd of people gathered around, you know, counting back from 10, 10, 9, 8, cue the sun, 9, 7. Nobody's doing that. They're all doing dead guy stuff. They're not doing potentially risen guy stuff. Nobody expected nobody to be in there. They all think that he's dead. I want you to understand that Jesus wasn't the only thing that died on Calvary. That all of his friends, all of his people who had been following up to that point, they had placed an enormous amount of hope and trust in this man to leave a family business, to leave a lucrative business of tax collecting, to come to this place where now we've sold everything. We've turned around and abandoned everything. We've left our families. We've left all of our stuff and we're following you. Jesus wasn't the only thing that died on Calvary. All of their hope died. Their hope for a new different future. Their hope for a life where they had purpose and they had meaning beyond making money. All of those died. Their dreams of a better future died. And even though Jesus was this man who they had spent three years with and the entire time was essentially homeless, their home died because there was never a person who they felt more at home with than with him. And today we're gonna lean into that reality of home. We're gonna lean into reality that when Jesus died, the reverberating thought on almost everybody's mind was this. It's not supposed to be this way. We're supposed to be in charge. There's this crazy story about, um, (laughs) never get your mom to handle your business uh, when you're a grown man, uh, I will say. Um, So there's this crazy story uh, in the gospels. Uh, There's these two brothers who Jesus called to call him, James, John, and they get their mama to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, when you become king, can he sit at your left and he sit at your right? (laughs) And this is right after Jesus said, I'm gonna be spit on, flogged. I'm gonna be buried on a cross and I'm gonna be buried for three days. And then mama comes up, poor emotional intelligence, I'll just say on her behalf, and just goes, hey, mm, I hear all that. That's great and all. Um, okay, my boys, I want one over here and one over here. It'll be great for the pictures. Um, I'll, I'll be able to send out, put on the postcards. It'll be great. Because, because they were doing what we do in life. We see things start to go well. And we don't just go look at that house that we could move in in that neighborhood. We start imagining, oh, the kids will play in the yard and we'll, we'll build a tree house over there. And, and you don't just go shopping for a car. You feel what it would look like to pull up at so-and-so's neighborhood or ride through or to get, drop your car off and drop your kid off in the school line driving that car. See, that's the thing that's so painful when something bad happens. It's not just that the bad thing happens. It's that all the hope of what could be if that thing would have stayed around is also gone. We find ourselves in moments going, it's not supposed to be this way. And I would be willing to bet that in a room this size and amount of people watching online, that there is somebody who can relate to that. Who maybe for the last two, three years, maybe this, this week has been one of those, it's not supposed to be this way, weeks. I'm supposed to be married by now. We're supposed to have kids by now. I, I'm, I'm 42 years old. I'm not supposed to be living paycheck to paycheck. We're, we're supposed to be retired and in Florida by now, but I'm, I'm raising my kids' kids now. And there's this thing in our hearts that just gets worn down because we go, it's not supposed to be this way. And if you can relate to that, I think you can find your place in this Easter story because that was the the echo on everybody's mind as this was happening. And we see what 
God meets them. He, we see how God connects with them as their joy is going down and depression is rising up. If you got a Bible, you can go to Mark chapter 16. Jesus meets them right in the middle of this and he'll meet you right in the middle of it as well. Mark 16, starting verse one. These verses prove to us yet again that nobody was expecting Jesus to rise from the grave, that they show up doing what you're supposed to do when somebody is dead. Mark 16, one says, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, they brought spices so that they might go anoint Jesus's body. Again, this is something you do when someone is dead. These women in the story, they're kind of going, okay, uh, we know it was a couple of fellas who took him down off the cross and like women do sometimes, right, guys? Um, they went to great lengths to make sure that the job was actually done really thorough, all right? And they were going to make sure it was done really thorough. They kind of had to do a rush job, the fellas did, to get him off because all of this whole crucifixion stuff, it happened really late on Thursday night and, and before they could really do anything, he was off the tomb, he, he was put in there, he, he was all taken care of. And so they're going, hey, we wanna make sure that he's paid the respect that he's actually owed. And they go, and they go on this journey because they think he's, he's gone and hope is gone as well. It says, very, very early on the first day, just after sunrise, they were on the way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? So they go and they get all the stuff, and then they get around and they're like, they're looking at each other and like, you're not strong enough, I'm not strong enough, I'm not strong enough. We're not strong enough. And the reason that they're having this kind of conversation amongst them is because all of the men who would have been strong enough, they're all chickens. They're all completely terrified and afraid at this moment. They somehow, as the guys who actually spent the most closest time with Jesus, they have somehow forgot this reality that he would rise again on the third day. And so they're all terrified and afraid, hiding because they think they're gonna do it to Jesus they're going to do the same thing to us. But they're afraid. These women are going, how are we going to roll this tomb, roll the stone away from this tomb? But they looked up and they saw the stone, which was very large and had been rolled away. Praise God. And they entered the tomb and they saw a young man, read angel there. Uh, they saw a young man dressed in white robes sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Understatement. Don't be alarmed, he said. Which again, when you come in, you're looking for a dead guy and you see a young man, no beard, just kind of chilling, all, you know, legs crossed. And I, if I, I'm not an angel, obviously. Um, but I just see this angel just sitting there and I just see his feet. I mean, I just, I don't know about you, but I just see his feet just kind of kicking. He, he says, don't freak out. You know, I just, that's the angel I see. I don't know what angel you see, but this angel, he like, he's been counting down the moments to the time they show up, just legs kicking, ready for them to show up. And so they show up, they're expecting a dead guy, um, not a lot of movement. They see legs kicking. They see this young man uh, who, who is obviously an angelic figure. He says, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazarene. Well, yes. He was crucified. He's, he's saying, okay, this makes sense. Like dead people are supposed to be here. He was crucified. Then he says these awesome words. He has risen. Praise God. He is not here. See the place where they've laid him. Now, the reason I highlighted these words, he has risen, is if you look at it just like that, kind of what it implies is that Jesus was just lying there and a certain amount of time passed. And I guess God said it was good. He just... And he's just up. And that's one way to look at it. But as I dug into the, the Greek of what is actually this, he it has risen, is actually one word in the Greek. It's this word, igero. Can we say that together? And if you can, you got a little bit of sauce in you. Roll that R, okay? Okay, let's try it together. Igero. 
There you go. Good job. Igero. All right. It's really one word that he is risen. And, and 16 times in the Bible, it's actually translated when it shows up as risen. All right. 61 times it's translated raised. Now that actually makes a difference to when you say, if you're the angel, you're saying that and you say he was raised because now what that implies is that there was another outside force who did the raising. And I'm here to tell you that that is precisely what happened, that there wasn't a Jesus who was just laying there who just happened to get up when the, when the clock struck midnight, that there was actually the love of heavenly father that came and said, I couldn't bear it for one more minute for my son and I to be separated. And the father raised up his son. So that the first eyes that that son sees is his victorious father who their victorious plan has now come to fruition. And guys, that's the difference. That's, that's what we rejoice in. That's what we glory in is the fact that we have a father who's willing to send his son to a sin scarred, broken world, but he would actually also raise him up. And I know some of you right now, it feels like what you're going through is God trying to kill you. I'm here to tell you, God's not trying to kill you. And even though you may feel like he may be trying to kill you and what you're going through may be painful and you don't see any way out, he is a father who will raise you up. But I, I, I kind of like this guy and get though. I like that. And I found myself putting that into the passage and seeing what it would sound like with that. Now, forgive me, it makes it a little more Southern. It makes it a little more redneck if I had to be honest. And so I'm gonna do my best to paraphrase this, but stick to the, the, the Greek language because it actually, you know, 30 times it's actually translated get or got. When Jesus told somebody to, to rise up, he said, he just said, Igero, which was like, get up. So here's, um, I'll read this to you. It's in the New Southern Translation. <laughs> if, if, if you're from Ola or Jackson, this would be so easy for you to get. And I can say that because I am. Okay, here's what he says. This is, and again, this has come off the angel's mouth. Hey, don't freak out. I bet you're here looking for Jesus because he was definitely crucified. Get this though. God already got him up. Look in there. He ain't there. Again, that's, again, I don't know your angel. Yeah, I don't know your angel, but my angel says stuff like this. Because, and, and trust me, I'm not trying to just be cute with the text. I'm trying to really stick to the Greek word here. In the same way that if my wife and I are downstairs and we're, we're, we're cooking breakfast and one of my boys is still upstairs asleep, if she says, Trent, get Titus. I know what that means. He's asleep. I got to go get him. And so I believe God in this moment saying, there's my son. I'm going to get him. I'm, I got you, son. And I would say that he's saying the same thing over you. I got you. I got you. I got you. I got you. So the angel shows up and says, hey, uh, God got him up. He's risen. And their depression doesn't turn to joy immediately. Their depression actually turns into confusion. They're like, somebody stole him. Uh, they, they just completely almost disregard it. You know, most of the accounts are going, oh, you know, and they're all freaking out. And then what happens is in the midst of their frustration, in the midst of their confusion, in the midst of their depression, they go back to what we often do is you just go back to life. And you just trudge through. And it feels like you got a 90 pound gorilla on your back, but somehow you just find a way to take another step forward. when it feels like all hope is lost. But what's fascinating, what I wanna show you is that Jesus actually told them that grief would come. Sometimes we think grief is like, oh man, grief is the enemy. No, sometimes Jesus says, you're gonna go through grief and grief is good. Look what he says. He said this to him in John 16, 20. This is pre-crucifixion, pre-resurrection. 
He's trying to prepare their hearts for what's to come. He says, so with you, now is your time of grief. It's gonna hurt. Pain is gonna happen. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice. Now, somehow they failed to realize all of this and I don't know if they thought, okay, yeah, in the day to come. Yeah, but no, like three days after it happens. You'll see you again and no one will take away your joy. Now, I love that. And if you're an underliner, a note taker in your Bible, that's worth underlying. No one will take away your joy. And the reason that he says to them, no one's gonna take away your joy because the joy that he gives them, resurrection joy is a joy that the world can't take away because the world can't give resurrection joy. We can get cars, we can get money, we can get houses, we can have all sorts of kids filling our house, running up and downstairs, doing all sorts of great things. You can have the life, you can get verified on all the social media things, you can become an influencer, you can do all those things. But I'm telling you, that's a joy that pales in comparison to the joy that can be found in the resurrected Savior. And he says, all the world can take all that stuff away from you, but I'm giving you a joy that can never be taken away because joy is only made possible through the resurrection. And then he shows up, and John 20, and he hand delivers it. Check this out. On the evening of the first day of the week, so this is post-crucifixion, this is post-resurrection, evening of the first day of the week, so this is Easter Sunday, but kind of towards the evening, around dinner time. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked, again, they are scared. With the doors locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, I love these words. If you're an underliner, underline, highlight that, peace be with you. Now, Again, these aren't guys who had just got through doing a bunch of awesome stuff. These aren't just guys who were getting back from a conference on God. These were guys who had all, one by one by one by one, had turned their back on Jesus and betrayed him. Even Peter, you know, he's a guy who's going, Jesus, listen, <clears throat> all these guys, they're going to betray you. But me, Jesus? Not me, Jesus. Not me, Jesus. And Peter's like, I got you, Jesus. Jesus is like, no, you don't. Rooster's gonna crow, Peter, three times. And you're gonna realize that this whole relationship between me and you is not about you having me, but about me having you. And so Jesus walks in this room where if you're a disciple and you just watched Jesus die, you know you weren't on good terms with him. And so you don't just have an ending to the relationship, you have a horrible ending to the relationship. Jesus walks in the room and goes, first words out of his mouth, peace. Peace be with you. Some of you today, you haven't been in church in a long time. And you walked into these doors and Jesus enters into these doors with you. And I don't know what you think he's gonna say to you when you show up. I don't think you, I don't know what you think he's gonna say to you if you show up next week too. But I think it's gonna be something like this. Hey, I know you're not perfect. I know we've had some rough days, some rough weeks, rough seasons, maybe in some rough years. But I'm here to tell you that peace can be with you because I'm here with you now and you're here with me. He says, peace be with you. Verse 20, this is where he hand delivers joy to him. After this, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So picture, I mean, again, picture Jesus in the room. You, you, first of all, you're like, oh my God. Jesus, how is this happening? Because again, dead people don't rise from the grave. Nobody had done that before. And so Jesus shows up. He's like, check it out. You remember how gruesome this looked a few days ago? You remember hearing me scream out in agony as they put those nails through this hand and this hand and then they laid my feet over each other and they put a nail through that. You remember what that was like? 
You remember how when they put that spear in, the, in my side right here and he, he lifts up his robe and he kind of lifts it up so they can see his bare skin. He said, you remember when they did this and, and blood and water, the wind blew it across the crowd. You remember that? It's healed. There's hope there now. And I don't think it's by any strange coincidence that this verse shows up in 2020. Because I'm willing to bet that there's some people in this room who you have not felt overjoyed since 2020. 2020 happened, punched us all kind of square in the face, changed a lot of things for a lot of people, lost jobs, lost family members, a lot of loss, a lot of confusion, a lot of fear, racial tension all throughout our country, a lot of craziness going on in 2020. And, and I, I would imagine there's at least some people in this room who would say, when you, when you were asked, you're pressed to go, hey, when was the last time you just felt overjoyed? Not happy, not numb, not like the Braves won the World Series, the dogs won a national championship. You were happy for a few days, but then you went back to work and it was like, hmm. But when was the last time you felt overjoyed? Jesus walks into this room with these guys and said, you wanna know where overjoyed comes from? It comes from scars. And he looks at them the same way I believe he would look at us. Say, friend, I know in this world, bad things are gonna happen. I know in this world, painful, unimaginable things are gonna take place in your life. But please, fellas, please, ladies and gentlemen, look at these scars in my hands. Look at this big giant wound that is now healed on my side to know that by my wounds, you can be healed. Look to the cross and see the trauma there. Look at the cross and see the tragedy there. But look to the cross and remember that through that, you can experience triumph. I was rejected. I, I was beaten and mutilated, alone, isolated there, even had the Father turn his face away from me so that you can now see the Father and you can know the Father. Friends, this world is going to chew you up and spit you out, but take heart, I overcame it. And my scars are proof. So he comes and, and he says these things to them and he offers this joy to them. And I believe through him showing them these hands, he's now also showing them what he holds. And he foreshadows this in the book of Revelation, it talks about how everything is gonna go down at the very end. And he says, I'm the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. These hands that used to have nails holding them up to a tool of Roman torture now hold the keys to life and death and heaven and hell. It's his way of saying, my empty grave has unlocked something. Without me going through what I went through, without me dying and then being raised to, raised to life, there's no way that you could walk through a door into my father's companionship, into my father's family and be able to experience love, ever being able to experience joy and compassion. You would never get that unless I unlock this door. So what this means for us now is we stand as people who acknowledge that this empty grave is an open door. But as that stone rolls away, it is an open invitation to people like me and you to come in and to enter into the home that you were created and made for. One of the misdiagnosed illnesses in our society, in our life, is homesickness. That longing for 
a prescription medication to just make us feel better. That longing for um, this material thing to make us feel like we matter. That longing for that relationship to make us feel and define our self-worth. All of those things, I would say, yes, there is some aspect of that that is anxiety and depression. Yes, there is some aspect of that that is a father wound. There is some cancer. There are some painful things in life. But I think deep within us, if you rooted it all down and boiled it down to the irreducible, irreducible minimum, most of our pain, heartache, and feelings of sadness in this world is rooted in homesickness. That we realize as we look around this broken world, that goodness gracious, there's no way that this can be all there is. So Jesus says, my empty tomb is an open door inviting you into a home where it doesn't have to be this way. What I wanna do with the rest of my time that I have here is walk you through what is on the table of this invitation that is made possible by the empty grave. And what I'm gonna do here, and it may be a little bit different than what what you're used to. If you're around MCC for a while, you probably are used to it, but there's gonna be a lot of scripture here. And and my my heart is honestly, if you only come on Christmas and Easter, I love you. We pray consistently for you, for most of you, especially those who are kids, we know your name um, and we pray for you by name. But what, why I'm doing this is because what you need most is not a pastor who's gonna give you really good points or really entertaining thoughts about this. What you need most, your only hope of your heart being turned, you finding the homecoming is by God's word, recklessly and miraculously melting the heart that sin has brought to stone. And so if you've been around MCC for very long, you've heard me say this and I'll say it again to you. We're getting ready to enter into the best part of the message. And it's not the things I say, but it's the truth that's found in God's word. So my prayer is that every time there's a passage of scripture that comes onto the screen, that if you're a follower of Christ in here, you would just whisper, Holy Spirit, melt the heart. And if you are curious and wondering and trying to find out who Jesus is, that even as they come up, you would say, Jesus, what do you want me to see here? You wouldn't just pass by the passages of scripture to hear what a guy like me, who's just as broken as most of you, would say about it, but that you would lean into what the Father is saying to you through it. The first thing that we get invited to because of the empty grave is it's an invitation to a home where instead of condemnation, you get compassion. Around here, we've been talking about the story of the prodigal son, and we see this on full display in his life. We see in the story of the prodigal son, which most people have heard, uh, I would say, I would change the name to the prodigal sons or even change the name to the prodigal father. It's this story where there's an older brother and a younger brother, and the younger brother comes to the father and essentially says, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. I want what's mine. And the thing that I'm okay with not being mine anymore is you. You're dead to me. That's kind of how that would have translated. Give me what I want. Again, you only get inheritance when somebody dies. He's essentially saying, you're dead to me. Give me what, I owe, what you owe me, God, I, what I'm entitled to, God, and I want to go make my life better on my own. I'm going to sacrifice the relationship for your resources because that's what I really want more. We see the son go out into the far country and he lives it up. And I believe wholeheartedly he experienced freedom. He experienced joy. He partied it up. I mean, he was flexing on all sorts of levels. And and then he runs out of money. And then a famine hits. And the bottom falls out. Some of you have experienced that. And God, I believe, wanted him to get to the bottom. His bottom looked like a pig pen. He's longing to eat these things that if he would eat, they're pig food, but if he ate that food, it would kill him. 
He's longing to eat that. And he realizes, man, my father, even his hired servants, even the people that are day laborers in the farm, they have more than enough food to spare. My father's a generous father. Here's what I'm gonna go do. I'm gonna go work my way back into the family. I'm gonna work my way back at least to having food so I don't starve to death. And so he gets up and here's what we see happen. He got up and went to his father. He's expecting to deliver his speech. He's expecting to be able to tell dad, hey, I'm so sorry. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I've done all these things wrong. If you just let me be a day laborer, if you just let me, you don't have to call me son anymore. Just, just let me come in and work. I, I just need to have food. And here's what happens. He got up and went to his home. But while he was still a long way off, which indicates that his father was looking for him, his father was expecting him. His father saw him and was filled with compassion. A lot of you guys, when you feel like you're coming back to God, you don't sense a God who when you return to him, when you show back up at church, when you begin to pull your Bible out for the first time in a few months, in a few weeks, in a few years, you don't think that you're coming to a God who is filled with compassion to you. You think you're filling up and you're coming to a God who is full of condemnation for you. But I'm here to say on his behalf, He has compassion for you. The reason Jesus told this story was to prove the point that God has compassion on lost sinners when they return home. Full of compassion. He runs to him and does the unthinkable, completely undignified. It would be so shameful for a father in this day and age when people said this father ran to him, they'd be going, oh, no way. Again, the thighs out, sky's out, no way. You're leaving your, your robe down. Nobody needs to see that in their day and age. But it proves the point that God is willing to become as undignified as he needs to be to give you dignity. He will become as ungraceful as he needs to be to show you grace. That's what he does here. He runs, he puts his arm around him and he kissed him. See, there's always grace in our Father's embrace. There's always grace there. Romans 8 makes this really clear too. It says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no condemnation. Now, on behalf of churches everywhere, I want to apologize to you if in the midst of your sin, you felt more condemnation from the church that's supposed to be representative of your heavenly Father than you felt compassion Many of you, that's your story. Church hurt is a real thing. Many of you in this room have felt it. I felt it as even a pastor. And I'm sorry for the way you felt condemnation when you should have felt the Father's compassion. David writes in the Psalms about this father. He says he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds, which sometimes I think when we come to God, whether it's our, our wounds of self-righteousness or our wounds of rebellion that sin has caused or even the wounds of what somebody has done to us, we think that God kind of sees all our woundedness and he looks at us like we have leprosy and it's like, ooh, uh, okay, get that stuff that bubbles up and turns white when we put it, we're gonna have to clean that, it's gonna hurt, hope you're ready for that. Um, and you bring that uh, orange stuff that just stains your leg for like four weeks. Uh, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna have to do what we gotta do to clean you up and God's kind of just like, oh, this is so gross that's not the picture of him we have. We have a God who is like a doctor who rejoices and is proud of the fact that he can bring healing and and longs for the patient to come into the room. It's crazy how you you talk to doctors and nurses and they do some really gross stuff. Any doctors and nurses in this room could just nod your head. Yeah, we do some just absolutely disgusting things. Even dental hygienists are going, what are you guys eating? But that you get to this place where it's part of your identity now. I don't, I, don't, I don't care that it looks like that. I don't care that that's going on there. This is why I'm here. This is my purpose. It's to clean, it's to heal, it's to save, it's to restore. I'm not condemning you. I have compassion on you. I want these wounds to be bound up. 
I want these wounds to be healed. The next invitation offered by the empty grave is an invitation to a home where instead of insecurity, we can receive eternal security. Instead of insecurity, you get eternal security. And most of you, when, you when, you're, when you're not experiencing the home that is truly found in Christ, it is marked by fear. It's marked by anxiety. It's marked by depression. And in Luke 15, we see this in, in our prodigal. The son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven against you. He says, I'm no longer worthy. The security that should have been contained and bound up with being the son of this father has now vanished. And he thinks that it vanished because of his sin. He says, I'm no longer worthy. And what he doesn't know is the same thing that sometimes we forget is that our worthiness to God is not defined by what we do or don't do. Our worthiness to God is defined by our bloodline. Our worthiness to God is defined by the fact that we are his sons and daughters. It's not defined by what you do, it's defined by who you are. And so for many people in this room, we say things like, I'm just really struggling with my self-worth today, or I have problems with my self-worth. Well, if you're the one who gets to define it, friend, you will always have problems with it. You will perpetually live a life where you struggle and you don't know how worthy you are until you look to the cross and you see the price that was paid for your life, that you were worth Jesus to God. And you go, okay, I may have days where I don't feel good about myself, but I will, from this day forward, I will have no days where I doubt how much worth I have to my father. And when you have that, you, man, you have all the security. You can walk with your chest poked out a little bit. Go, okay, that's, it's fine. I don't have to live and die for the security of the world or the security this world can bring me. I am secure enough in my father. I love the way Romans 8 puts it. It says, for those who are led by the spirit of God, those people, they're children of God. They've been, they've been awake and they're a child. And when you know that you have a father like our father, then you're like, okay, things are good now. The spirit you received, it doesn't make you slaves. It doesn't make you slaves to what's going on at work. It doesn't make you slaves to a mother-in-law. It doesn't make you slaves to a parent's approval that you're constantly living up to. It doesn't make you slave to getting the, the acceptance or the invitation into a certain neighborhood or a certain club or a certain sect. Like none of that. I don't have to live as a slave anymore, a part of the system. I'm no longer a slave. He says, the spirit you receive does not make you a slave so that you live in fear again. Rather, you have a spirit that does not make you a slave. It actually makes you a son because the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. That means you get the full inheritance. That's the spirit you receive. So I don't have to live in fear anymore because I have a father. I'm not fatherless. And that's why it says it's a spirit that we cry out, Abba, Father. You wanna know if you're saved? Is there something inside of you that goes, I've got a dad. I have a father. And, and he provides, he loves, he cares for me. The same way for the prodigal son, there's nothing I could do. And he actually kind of gave me the inheritance so I could take it and run off and waste it so that I could come back and he could there in that moment prove, hey, you could do the worst thing you could ever imagine. And I'm still gonna be right here, hugging, kissing, putting rings on your finger, robes on your back and sandals on your feet because that's the type of father I am. And he says, all right, if this is who I am, why? Why are you insecure? Trust me, trust me, trust me. We don't have to live in that fear anymore. And the good news is, a lot of times we can just go like, okay, well, that's heaven. Yeah, and I'll get that when I get there. But here's what I want you to know. Eternity starts now. Eternity starts right here, right now. When you're in Christ, you don't just like, okay, well, uh, I'm just gonna do my best to you know, go to church and not hurt anybody's feelings and, do the right thing and I'll die and I'll go to heaven one day. 
I'll be honest with you. To me, that sounds like a really miserable life. When I read the pages of scripture, there's a part of me that just goes like, I want a life like that. Like, I want to do that. That's what the Holy Spirit did then. Man, I want a life like that. I don't want to punch a clock and come in and go out and watch the same game and do the same things. Like, I want something different for myself. I want something different for my family. I want something different for my kids. That's, I think, why we have verses like Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. This is wild, too. It says, then Christ will make his home in your hearts, which it's like, for real, you want to come in there? It's rough. <laughs> it's hostile territory. But Jesus is okay with that. He's okay with a hostile territory, and he's okay with you having an up-and-coming heart, a fixer-upper heart. To come in and say, hey, we're not going to get this in a 30-minute segment that we can put on HGTV. Like, you ain't got one of those kind of hearts. Sorry. We got a heart. It's going to take a few seasons. You got a heart that's going to take a lot of work. And that's all of us. And he says, I'm going to come and make a home in your hearts. And here's your end. As you trust him. And your heart will become more of a home to Christ in directly proportion to the amount of trust you put in him. He says, if that happens, what will happen is your roots will go down into God's love and it will keep you strong. And you may have the power to understand all, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep is his love. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you'll be made complete with all the fullness of life and the power that comes from God. The last invitation that we have is the empty grave is an invitation to a home where instead of a bad life, you get a good death. Now, I kind of see some of you online and some of you in the room, you kind of got German shepherd head right now where you're going, What do you mean? Let me explain it like this. Jesus came to initiate an upside down kingdom. And we think the order of things is life, then death. And Jesus comes on the scene and goes, no, we're flipping the whole kingdom upside down. We're thinking we're creating a divine paradox. So the real order that it goes is death, then life. And everything before that death, it's not life at all we see this in, in the story of the prodigal. The father is talking about his son towards the end of the story. He says, for the son of mine was a bad little boy who did some naughty things and we were, you know, whatever. No, he says, the son of mine was dead. He was dead. Without Jesus, I, I don't hate to break it to you. It's my honor to break it to you for the sake of it breaking you. If you don't have Christ, you are dead as well. You are dead in your sin. You are dead in your trespasses. He says, this, this son of mine who's lost, he wasn't just lost. He wasn't just a bad person. But at the end of their life, we were going to measure out how much good outweighed the bad. And then we'd you know, give them some grace and we'd let them slide on a technicality. He says, no, you're dead. And the only way you can undead something that's dead is if somebody unlocks resurrecting power and now has the keys to that. So he says, the son of mine was dead, but now he's alive again. He's lost and he's found. And so they began to celebrate. They began to party. They began to have this huge party, not because the son got his crud together. They had this party because there was a father who was willing to, with his grace, say, even though you said we were dead to you, I'm willing to have all of my pride die. I'm willing to, willing to ruin my reputation in this entire community. I'm even willing to have your brother get really ticked off about me and never come back into the family. 
show you that there's nothing you could do that will stop me from loving you. See, we live in this world that says, live your best life and do your best. And, and, and where, we, where we come in here to this passage where we talk about, okay, it's an invitation to instead of getting a bad life, getting a good death, a bad life is this. I cannot think of any worse life than you spending your time, energy, money, and effort to become the best version of yourself. That is a bad life. But friend, that is what the world is pushing on you. That's the world, what the world is pushing on your kid. It's pushing, and the way they'll say it that sounds a little more intellectual is they will say, self-actualize. Because saying, be the best version of yourself, it's like, that's a little too Disney for me, honestly. Here's what I want you to understand. Here's what I want you to know. Joy is not found when you become the best version of yourself because the, the, the terrible, absolutely horrible thing about the best version of yourself is the best version of yourself will still go to hell because the best version of yourself is not sinless. So joy is not found when I become the best version of myself. Joy is found when you die to yourself because only when I die to myself am I a prime candidate for a resurrection that has to happen for life to truly happen. That's why Paul said what he said in Galatians chapter 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. This is Paul's way of saying, Paul who? Y'all call me Paul. But I'll tell you what, Paul can't get snake bit and keep going. Paul doesn't get shipwrecked and keep going. Paul doesn't get flogged and keep going. Paul doesn't sit in prison and then write messages that people for thousands and thousands of years will call the word of God. Paul doesn't do that. That's Christ. That's Christ in me. He's saying, it's, it's no longer I who live. Everything that I was has been crucified, it's dead and buried. And the life I live now, it's Christ living in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. He died for me so I could live, so I'll die for me, so I can live. And that is a good life. And we find ourselves here in this middle ground that I would call the already and the not yet. See, please don't get bound up when I talk about this invitation to a home where instead of condemnation, you get compassion and this invitation to a home where instead of insecurity, you get eternal security and this invitation to a home where instead of a, of a bad life, you get a good death. Don't hear me saying that that's just something that you just get to hold on to hope for because you'll get to experience that when you die. No, friend, that happens now. That's what we get to be a part of. That's what we gather together to celebrate. We are not an Easter celebrating church. We are an Easter church. Easter is not a holiday. Easter is our identity. We gather together to celebrate the risen Christ, to celebrate that you have a home. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. But at the same time, we get to experience that place, in my opinion, and as close to as we can in this place. And I think this is why Paul, he wrote this in the book of Ephesians. He says, so then, and he's talking to a church, people in Christ. He says, so then you are, not if you work really hard, you could be, not when you die, you will be. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, which is his way of saying, you're not people out here trying to find yourself. You're not people who are out here trying to self-actualize and find your space in the world. You're not a stranger anymore. You're not a sojourner anymore. 
you're now called to be an ambassador to Christ because you're at home with Christ. That is the true north for your soul. You're not a stranger. You're not a sojourner. He says, but you are fellow citizens. Again, this is all inclusive. This is all encompassing. This is an us thing, not a you thing, not a me thing. This is an us thing. We are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Household. One of those guys in the videos, he said, you know, you can have a house and not have a home. I'm telling you the things that make this a household of God is when it's not just brick and mortar. It really is just a building at the end of the day. But when it becomes the household of God is when the people of the house of God gather together to worship together and celebrate what was done so that they could receive and accept this invitation into this home. Keeps going on. It says, you're in the household of God that's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets in Christ Jesus himself who is the cornerstone. He's the one who started the building project, who it's all built on, who it all hinges on. It says, in, the whole, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him, you're also being built. Can we just say this, that word right there? One, two, three, built together, together, together. I'll say it again from the bottom of my heart. You cannot do Christianity alone. You were supposed to be a part of a family, a family that says, come to the dance floor, get out here, let's party, let's party together. I mean, how awkward is, I mean, just, just envision it, okay? The prodigal son story ends and you're able to get a little window into it, all right? And it's blaring music, got a speaker there, got a whole banquet table. And then there on the dance floor is just the, the younger son by himself, just... I don't want to be a part of that. But look, some of you, you think you can have a faith that is that. And God's going, that's awkward. Like, like, go over, like, there's a lot of, like, this is weird. that's not supposed to how it's supposed to be. Like, it's a party. It's a family. It's a place where you can finally feel that sense of belonging. And hear me, you don't have to wait to heaven to get that. You can get that in the church. And again, we're not gonna get that perfect all the time. We're gonna get that wrong probably half of the time. But sometimes, and I can tell this you know, from my heart, man, there's beauty in the local church when it is at its best. And my prayer, what I will do with every last drop of energy and effort that God will give me is to make us a church that is like the home that we have in him. And there's many people who would say, and I can't really put that, I can't really put my finger on that thing that's weird and special about MCC. It just feels like home. God's at work. And I believe he's inviting some of you today to come home. Some of you to come home for the first time. The very first time. We're gonna receive communion in a second. And for those of you who have not received this invitation to come home to Christ, I imagine you probably feel like a little bit like the prodigal in the story. And you, and, you, and you sense the father, even through us talking today, even through you getting invited in today, and you sense the father beginning to, to wrap his arms around you, beginning to try to kiss your cheek, and, and you're squirming, you're like, Ugh, and you're like, get away from me. And you, you break the wrist of the father and say, no, get away from me. I don't deserve this. You don't know how messed up I am. You don't know how wrong I've done. And the father just goes, Let's party, let's party. I wanna rejoice, I wanna celebrate. 
See, Jesus told that whole parable, and it was as a collection of three parables, one about a lost sheep, one about a lost coin, and one about a lost son. And all of it ends with this celebration. It ends with this party. And in the first two, Jesus makes this point because he was asked, why do you hang out with sinners? Why do you go and play around with messed up, jacked up people? And he told them these stories. And then he said, my father and the angels in heaven rejoice more over one sinner who repents than 99 people who don't need repentance. Now, secret here, there, there's no such thing as someone who doesn't need it. But what I want you to understand and what I want you to see here is the rejoicing that's happening right there. And maybe you've misunderstood this. When all of heaven is clapping and the angels are rejoicing, they're not going buck wild because Sean made a decision to follow Jesus. They're not going buck wild because Stephanie gave her heart to Christ. They're going buck wild. They lose their mind. The heavens rejoice because they all turn back to the father and the son and they go, this crazy plan actually worked. Did one more person, are you kidding me? They came to you, they gave their life to you. Way to go, Jesus. We can't believe that you would do this. Father, way to go. Man, how you sent your son, how hard was that? And they're losing their minds because they're rejoicing because they look to Jesus and they look to the Father and they go, somehow a resurrection happened so that their resurrection can happen. And today you're getting invited into that. So I pray you would take the next step card. And you would know that your next step is your best step into following Christ. If you're watching online, you can do that there as well. And to say today is the day where I'm gonna surrender my heart to him. I'm gonna come home to him. Some of you, your step home looks like baptism. And you can mark that on that card. I pray you'd be bold enough and brave enough to take that out and write that on there. Say, my next step is that. Some of you, my next step is, is becoming a member and, and saying, I wanna be a part of this family <laughs> until God calls me home to go be a part of the big, big, big family. So I see already and not yet. And as you receive communion today, pray you know the price that was paid so you can sit around the table. It's crazy that Jesus would institute a meal. Now, a party isn't a party without food, right? You guys are getting ready to go have an Easter party. Some of you crazy people are getting ready to go eat potato salad. You, you, you're hungry. And Jesus says, you're a part of the family. Come eat with me. I love you. I accept you. Come eat with me. And I pray that today as you do, you know what he did for you. I pray you stay where you're at. As soon as we finish communion, we're gonna give you a chance to see in part what hopefully one day you will see in full. To see what it looks like when, when God's children, young and old, are gathered together singing. And, and, and you're going to see some stuff. And I want you to just take a moment and just let this just burn itself into your memory. Look around in this moment. Feel this moment. And let it remind you of the hope that is to come. And the hope that can be found every day in a place like this. In your name. We pray, Jesus, we ask, Jesus, that you would move in miraculous ways in the hearts, minds, and souls of your people. Thank you for your broken body. Thank you for your poured out blood. Fill us today and let us come home. Let us come home. Amen.